Remember this? That, my friends, is the music playing in the background when Annie James and her butler Martin break out into their highly impressive secret handshake in the 1998 Disney movie, The Parent Trap. And if, like me, you were a child of the 90s, I have a feeling you tried to learn that handshake yourself. You probably also became obsessed with Lindsay Lohan, cut your hair to shoulder length with a side bang, begged your parents to let you go to sleepaway camp, and wondered if you too might just have an identical twin out there in the world waiting to become your best friend. All because of The Parent Trap. But before the 1998 movie, there was a 1961 movie of the same name. And before that, there was a German children's book that inspired it, written by Eric Kastner in 1949. The original title translated to The Double Lottie, but was ultimately changed to Lottie and Lisa, though many translations can now be purchased under the title The Parent Trap. Are you confused yet? It's about to get more confusing, because just like in the movie, the long-lost twin characters in the book meet at summer camp and decide to switch places, but they also happen to have alliterative names, Lottie and Louise, so it's very hard to keep track of who is where at any given time. Similarities with the book kind of stop there, though. The original story is much darker, with parents who are disengaged and even neglectful of their children, and who seem to have absolutely no problem putting the burden of their own relationship issues on their newly reunited children. There's nervous fevers, infidelity, some sexist ideas around parenting and working moms, and so much more. On this episode, our first back from an awesome Manuary 2020, my guests and I chat about all of it with a healthy dose of outrage. We also consider how much of our frustration with the story can be chalked up to things getting lost in translation, literally, discuss whether the book should really be for children, and reminisce about our memories of the movies, which are, spoiler alert, much more charming than the source material. Let me introduce you to my guests. Christy and Izzy are 15 years apart, light years apart in career paths, and getting closer with every episode of their podcast from where she sits. While Christy is a 43-year-old mom of two, attorney, and suburbanite, Izzy is a 28-year-old millennial, theater kid, and reluctant 9-to-5-er who is still trying to figure it all out from her tiny apartment in New York City. The From Where She Sits podcast is their exploration of life from two generational standpoints, as women, as people, as friends. They recently wrapped up their second season of the pod. Congratulations, ladies! You can give them a listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite shows. Follow From Where She Sits on Instagram at FWSS Podcast and follow the hosts at From Where Christy Sits and at From Where Izzy Sits. Visit www.fromwhereshesits.com for more information. You can get more information about all things SSR at www.ssrpodcast.com or by following on social media. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. I know I say it every episode, but I will continue to humbly ask ask for your five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes. We are coming dangerously close to 200, and I'd really appreciate your help in getting there. Ratings and reviews play a bigger role than you might think in making SSR more visible so new listeners can find it. You can also show your support for the podcast by spreading the word about your favorite episodes in your Insta story. Take a screenshot of this episode, yes, right now, and post it to that story, tagging at SSRPod so I can see it and give you a shout out. Want to rock some SSR merch? You can get your stickers, bookmarks, tote bags, and t-shirts at www.ssrpodcast.com shop. Finally, if you want to learn more about becoming a Patreon sponsor, visit www.patreon.com SSRPodcast. Patreon sponsors have the opportunity to support the podcast on a regular basis for as little as $1 a month, and there are some very cool rewards up for grabs in return. 
Thanks so much to the Patreon patrons tuning in to this episode. But enough about how you can support me and SSR. Let's talk for a second about supporting your favorite independent bookstore. Audiobook lovers, it's time to celebrate because it's now possible to do just that while you listen to all of the books on your TBR list, thanks to Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. As always, SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted to take advantage of that discount. I recently got the new Julie Andrews memoir, and I'm loving it so far. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Christy. Hi, Izzy. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. We also have Christy's dog joining the team. Spamoni is joining us. She's our official mascot. Spamoni, I'm so thrilled to have you. You're super cute and chewing on what looks like maybe like some plastic keys. Um, yes, plastic dog keys. Oh, yes. Um, Spamoni is very well read. So I think you're going to find that her contributions are going to be really significant in the conversation. I can tell by looking at her that she has a lot to say. Irv is actually in the room as well as I'm recording. So with the dogs, there's um, a whopping six of us on this recording, which is, I think, (laughs) more, more beings that have ever been involved in an SSR recording. So we're making history today. Historic, totally. Absolutely historic. Today, in in addition to making history with all of the dogs and humans that we have on this call, we are talking about The Parent Trap. And it is a little-known fact that there is a book that inspired The Parent Trap movies. Tell me about, if you were aware of this, tell me why you wanted to choose this book. I know we went back and forth a bit when we were deciding what book we wanted to read, but I'd love to get like a sense of your first impressions and, and if you had any idea that this had even been a book pre-movie. I think I had a sense that it was a book, but it wasn't until I actually like went to buy it online that I was like, oh, there are several translations, several different titles. Like speaking of history, this book is very old and I had no, <laughs> I had no idea um, that it started as a German children's book. So I think that was like the biggest surprise of all to us Yeah, because we were like, okay, now not only do we have to consider like what title that we're choosing because it goes under it's, the original German children's book is not called The Parent Trap, but we also have to decide which translation of which title of this children's book we're going to read. So yeah, we definitely had a lot a lot of back and forth before we even realized like we are not, not actually reading the parent trap. It's not just <laughs> it's not just Lindsay Lohan. Yes. It's not just about Lindsay Lohan. It's not and I think it's so interesting because I was thinking about this this morning like I feel as though the plot of the parent trap sort of as like 
a pop culture piece, whether you think about it as a book or a movie, is basically universally understood. Like, somehow even people who haven't seen the movie kind of understand the concept of what a parent trap is supposed to be. It just kind of, like, worked its way into the pop culture zeitgeist. People know what you're talking about when you just refer to a parent trap. But... The plot of the book specifically is not as well known, and the book itself isn't very well known. So I think it's kind of interesting. And often on the podcast, when we're talking about books that have been turned into movies, I try to like separate the two as much as possible. But I think it's really tricky with this one because there have been multiple movies. All of the movies, or at least the two big ones that I think are like most popular here in the US, have been so beloved and so popular. And the book has sort of paled in comparison, at least in the last few decades. So I think it's going to be an interesting conversation trying to figure out like how much we're going to lean into the movie conversation, how much we can focus on the book. Um, Because as much as the idea of a quote unquote parent trap is universally understood, it's a little different in in this original book. Before we even started reading the book, I was like, I'm going to read the German translation and then I'm going to go back and watch the Lindsay Lohan so I can go into this conversation like armed for that. But as soon as I started reading the book, I was like, oh, I absolutely cannot go back to the Lindsay Lohan movie because they're so different. It's going to like completely garble my mind. And I'm also so in favor of the Lindsay, like spoiler alert, so in favor of that over this book that like it's hard for me to like have a full conversation without the book without it like getting totally overwhelmed by my dear friend Lindsay. And I I guess sort of the element I'll add is, you know, I'm a mom, right? I have two kids. So watching the movie, it was like fun and kitschy and it's like, oh my gosh, it's so cute. And then they cut each other's hair and pierce each other's ears and then they switch it up. And But reading the book as a mom, I was outraged. She was like, pissed. I was incessantly <laughs> texting Izzy like... This is an outrage. Like, like this why, is child abuse, essentially. Why are, we, why are we celebrating this parent's selfishness in splitting up these twins? And, like, how do they not know it's not their kid that lives with it? Like, there were so many levels, Allie, where I was enraged. <laughs> so I will say my not just because book versus movie, it's always a different experience. And I'm, I'm, I really love books. Like I'm not so much a TV person, but I'm, I love books. And so I always experience those things differently as most people do. But in this instance, the reaction was not just, Oh, it's a book. It's different than a movie. It was like, Oh, this isn't a funny story. No, this isn't cute. It was super dark. Actually. I mean, we, we, Yeah, it went down a dark path for me. Yeah, I think there's a lot to get into. And I was actually thinking this morning in a way that I wish that I could say I planned. It's really perfect that I have you two on to discuss this book because obviously one of the key elements of your podcast is that you're coming at different ideas from two generations. And Christy, as you just said, you're a mom. And I think more than a lot of books that I've covered on the podcast – the Parent Trap or this German, you know, this original version book. I'm not going to attempt to say the German title because I would just butcher it. But that's very different than our approach on our podcast where we constantly try to say things we shouldn't be saying. So that's a far better. Your approach is much more welcome. <laughs> I mean, yeah. feel free to try if you'd like. No, 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 no I'm not. Nope. <laughs> but I think more than almost any other book that I've covered on the show, we get like such a parent perspective. Like there's this real focus on the parents in the book that I wasn't necessarily expecting that we don't quite get in the movies 
or at least in like the Lindsay Lohan version as much. Like it's really focused on the girls. Um, and so I was like, this is so perfect because we're going to have like a mom's perspective on this. Because if I were a mom, I think I too would be outraged by a lot of the content in this book. It's pretty crazy. Um, before we get into that, I'll give like a quick history lesson on this book because it's pretty interesting. Um, the author is Eric Kastner or Kostner. Um, not really sure how that would be pronounced. And he was a German man. He was a pacifist, anti-Nazi, um, and he was a writer. And he was allowed very briefly to work as a screenwriter during World War II. And so around 1942, he started what would ultimately become The Parent Trap. Um, but then he was like ordered to stop. Um, I'm, I can't imagine how that would have worked. But he was forbidden to continue working on this because of obviously like the political unrest and all the craziness that was going on in Germany at the time. The original version of it was called The Great Secret which I actually think is like a more fitting title for the book version than The Parent Trap. Um, obviously, like the this German translation, I think, is now called The Parent Trap because that's like the more universally known phrase. But The Great Secret actually makes a lot more sense. And then after the war, he went back to it finished it and it was published in 1949 in Germany where it became like an immediate bestseller and then as we know now has been translated into all these languages and has been adapted in all these different ways primarily into a 1961 movie starring Haley Mills which I remember watching at my grandparents house when I was little and then of course the 1998 blockbuster movie The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan which I completely had memorized word for word and I used to think it to myself when I was little and couldn't fall asleep at night like I'd watched it so many times that I knew every word I know I knew even like the little like chatter from the bit parts of the other campers like at the beginning and so I used to think that to myself when I couldn't fall asleep at night that was your form of meditation it was that's amazing that's incredible I'm so glad you shared that with us (laughs) I actually forgot how much I liked the original movie as well. I mean, I know. Yes. It far predates. I watched it on VHS though. Like I remember my parents sort of introducing that first earlier movie to me as like, this is something from my childhood that I want to pass on to you. Um, which I think is the cool thing about this book or this story in general. It's that it's definitely a story that's passed along through generations though. Having read the original book, I don't really know why. Like, it's not like the most, uplifting, like heroic tale that we should tell children to fall asleep to at night. It's very strange. It's about like being separated from one of your parents. Although like little kids books are almost always about orphans. So I guess (laughs) that's why kids are so obsessed with it. You having explained the history of the author as well too. There are so many elements of war that are imbued in this book, in this specific translation that I'm like, okay, this all makes sense given the time period and families being separated, even like the, the tactics that they describe the kids planning throughout the book are described like in almost military terms. So it just, it makes more sense to me having that background. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. And I, I think like it's it's worth noting up front that like whoever discovered this book and decided to write this first Disney screenplay made a lot of changes, particularly to the end. And I guess like I can see how whoever that person was saw the nuggets of like these two characters who met each other at camp, which is a really fun premise. And they were going to switch places, but decided to take it sort of like a punchier, goofier route um, instead of like what they read in this book, which was way more like insidious feeling to me. Yes. And I think Disney has an interesting way of taking terrible stories and convincing us to fall in love with them anyways. But the premise itself is, is super fun. I think that again, I think, I think the great secret is a far better name. Um, but 
the insidiousness, I think that's a great word. Like, it's just, I could, I, I know we're not at that part of my, my rage yet, but it's hard not to just focus there and wonder, is this what the life of a child was in that era of Germany, right? Where I imagine it was. I don't remember if it was Louise or, or Lottie that ends up where, but... The, the relationship with the father where he lived in a different apartment. I imagine that was reality, but to us now, it, it is bonkers to think of. And the girls sort of like desperation to like hold on to every part of their family and like all of their personal belongings, like their home where they lived, like it gives, again, it gives even more context having known that like a lot of kids at that time were being taken away from their homes and felt like even more protective of their own home base and their families than they would have been in like a time of peace. Christy, I want to give you permission to like let that rage fly throughout the duration of the episode. There's no need to, there's not like a rage moment where you're allowed to like just let it fly. So feel free to be enraged. Oh, sweet Allie. If you, if my husband were here, he'd say she doesn't need permission. She's yeah. going to, she's going to do it anyway. No, I, I, I think, listen, I can totally appreciate the generational to speak to our podcast, like going back beyond older than me and cultural difference. That was the impetus for this, this story. I think that, you know, in an era that we're in now where, you know, children are in therapy and everyone talks about feelings and it's like, these are two children that, experienced an extreme level of trauma (laughs) to an absolute extreme, right? And we are, like most fairy tales, are supposed to accept at face value that, you know, it turned out as it should have by that objective standard. So everything's good. But like, I'm flipping through the pages like, what? What? She did all the housekeeping? She did all the cooking? She did... Um, And I'm all for chores. Uh, My kids themselves will tell you that. But like, it was just this way of like children not being seen at all to the point that when they switch, no one noticed. Even as I think about the Lindsay Lohan version, which of course was more pleasing to the eye and funny. It's like, yeah, even in that situation, like those children weren't seen because I have lots of friends who have twins and they can close their eyes and hear their kids' voices and know that who they are, you know? And I think their lack of visibility to their parents is why they the kids acted out so much, too. First of all, both the adults and the kids in this book are very misbehaved. <laughs> the dad's like a cheater, kind of like power abuser, music director slash professor. Like, in my eyes, as a musical theater kid, I'm like, he's the epitome of a Broadway asshole, just like in Germany. (laughs) And then the mom is like the typical journalist who's just too busy for anybody. And the kids have to act out and like literally be physically violent to get attention from anybody, which I feel bad for these girls. Although that freckle faced girl, she deserved it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she got what was coming to her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just interesting, like how everybody's just motivated by rage and jealousy and it all ends in violence and it's just resolved somehow yeah. magically at the end. Well, so. that's World War II Germany for you, I guess. I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't say for sure, but that's, it seems to track based on what I do know from high school history class. Let's do a little intro of the girls because it, it's confusing. And I don't know if you had this experience while you were reading, 
But I had a lot of trouble keeping track of who was who and who was where because we have this like cutesy twin alliteration name thing. The girls are named Lottie and Louise. Um, In other translations, it's Lottie and Lisa, but the translation that we read was Lottie and Louise. Those are hard names to keep track of anyway. And then when you have the author sort of like inconsistently using their correct names and then also sometimes using the names of the twin that they're impersonating in the opposite place, like it got very difficult to follow, um, almost to the point where I was like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to follow this line by line. At a certain level, I'm just going to have to think big picture about this. And like, I'm not going to necessarily know exactly who the author is talking about at any moment. But at the beginning, it's a little bit more clear. So Lottie, if you're a fan of the Lindsay Lohan adaptation, Lottie is sort of the Annie character. She is the one who lives with their mom. They live in Munich. Her mom, as you mentioned, is a journalist. They don't have a lot of money. And Lottie carries a lot of responsibility for keeping up the house while her mom works. Um, so much so that her mom refers to her as the good little housewife, which I find to be extremely fucked up that like adults were feeding into that consistently. Um, like she didn't come up with that on her own. That came from the adults around her. Um, Lottie is the twin that has her hair in braids, which is of course meant to denote that she is like a little bit more organized, a little more put together, a little bit more like traditionally well-behaved and she is new to camp and so when she arrives at this camp on the lake in Germany somewhere um, you know it's sort of upon her to find her place Um, and that's tricky because this random girl that looks exactly like her has a much bigger personality and this band of mean girls who think that it's their responsibility to sort of like create conflict between the two of them her lookalike is named Louise who would be the Hallie counterpart again if we're talking about the Lindsay Lohan adaptation Um, Louise lives with their dad in Vienna. Um, And again, as you mentioned, he's this like brooding musical guy. He's a music director. There's this implication, I think, that like he was always cheating on the mom when they were married. There's a line about how like there was a lot of leaving at nighttime and he like was never sure if he wanted to come home. Super shady stuff. But Louise is like a little bit more carefree. Um, you know, her hair is in ringlets. So I guess that's supposed to mean that she's like not as well behaved. She seems like also very hard to achieve. So that shows some effort as well. I agree. Like the perfect ringlet is not a joke. No, exactly. <laughs> she's like painstakingly doing hot rollers every morning at a summer camp and everybody's like wow she's so wild and carefree (laughs) she's such a free spirit she's such a hippie so yeah louise of course is like the exact opposite of lottie and i think that like something that's interesting about about this book and about a lot of books like this i mean this is hardly a unique case but there's this sense of like the binary nature of the girls like they have to be the exact opposite in everything and i know that that's that's just like a device that authors use and I guess if you're writing for kid readers it helps to like maybe simplify it for them to understand but I do think it's unfortunate that it has to be so binary and I do think that that's changed um, over time and I think even in the in the movies like I think there's a little bit more nuance to the characters it's just it's so obvious in this book that like one is good and one is bad one is crazy and one is calm like one is smart and one isn't and it's really upsetting yeah we talk about that on our podcast literally all the time even within ourselves like so just to give you a little background if you haven't listened before each episode of our podcast is named her joy her friendship etc. And so when we talk about like an emotion or a personality trait, it's very easy to label, I think, especially women as either happy or sad, either crazy 
or organized or exactly. And that's something we push back in a lot in our conversations together because there is no such thing as any binary personality traits or emotions. Each individual is a complex and multifaceted person. Um, I think it's especially telling that this book was written by a man, um, just because I think if a woman wrote this, she would have more insight into what it felt like to be a little girl at summer camp. Um, I, I will say though, we fall victim. I'll speak as parent. There's a whole there was a whole line of analysis about how we create the way our children are by telling them who they are, right? So telling your child when she's acting out, you're just like your father. Well, then they think that they're not, like children are very uh, this or that. It's very black and white. It's like, oh, well then I'm just like him. I'm not at all like her, right? So I read this article and of course immediately felt guilty. I was like, so now, you know, even in these children, one very, it's interesting from where, from my perspective, the carefree one that lived with the dad had elements of her mother who had to be a little bolder to be a journalist in Germany in that era, right? Like as a woman. And the one that was caring for the mother was trying to maintain control of like an out of control situation. So I I think for me, yes, the binary nature of their two characters probably lends itself to a children's book. But, and now I'm skipping to the end, there's nothing about this that, to me, that screams children's book. It is a deeply sad story of divorce and conflict and philandering and... The author even acknowledges at one point, like, your parents are probably looking over your shoulder as you're reading this and thinking that this is not a book suitable for children. Right, at the very start. It's yeah. About that. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the author knows that this topic is really troubling. Like there's some self-awareness. I don't think it was completely written to be a happy-go-lucky fairy tale about two siblings who get separated and find their way back to each other. And Allie explained that he was coaxed to stop writing it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's controversial controversial for a variety of reasons, I would think. Well, and I think it's interesting. The kids are very involved in a lot of adult affairs, and that's from the beginning. So even, like, the details that we're getting when we first meet Lottie about the fact that, like, she's basically keeping the books for her mom. She's doing all the accounting, which, like, she must be very smart. She's doing all the accounting. She does all the cooking. She does all the cleaning. She's very concerned all the time about taking care of her mother. She herself plays an adult role. And then as the book continues, the girls are taking on responsibility for, like, more and more adult things. Even the fact that Luis, to my mind, kind of hilariously steps in and kind of tries to broker a real estate deal with their neighbor. So, listeners, for background, as we referred to briefly before, for some strange reason, Louise's dad doesn't live in the apartment with her. They have this housekeeper named Rezzy who sort of, like, handles the day-in and day-out stuff with Louise and her dad comes in periodically but like he has this apartment in what I think is sort of this posh part of town where he can like play music and entertain ladies and they have this neighbor who is a painter and he asks Louise to come over and pose for a portrait and while she's sitting there she finds out that he doesn't have a lot of light in this apartment and she's like oh you know it would actually be a great idea my dad's apartment in that posh part of town has a really really great window and so why don't you just go take that apartment and dad can move in here. And the neighbor was like a little bit hesitant, but not 
nearly as hesitant as he should have been, which, I mean, it kind of made me laugh because I was like, we really have lost all control of who's supposed to be in charge in this particular community. So they're they're concerned with real estate and they're very involved and, and sort of like taking the lead even in matters of their parents' relationship. Once they come together, like it's the kids who are sort of like trying to, to broker um, the reconciliation between the parents. And it's not in a cute way like in the movies where they bait both of the parents to this cool yacht and have them have this fancy dinner. It's more of just this very direct way of like, you guys should probably get back together. Um, and I, I think that it's like very upsetting. It's on their birthday. Yeah. Like at, like on their, their birthday, it's like, guys, the only thing we want for our birthday is for this to happen. And, and that too, though, is where it's a children's book because the parents are like, okay, give us a second. Let us go in the other room. And they go in the other room and they're like, you know, they're right. We probably shouldn't have separated them. That was a bad idea. Should we get back together? But interesting of that conversation, it's more the father saying to the mother, he was the cheater. He's like, can you get over it? You know, that's how I read that conversation. It wasn't him being like, forgive me. It was sort of like, can you move on? And she's like, of course I can. And then the girl's like, yay, now they're kissing. And it's like, oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. All right. I need like 65 more pages of this whole play. Like someone tell me, I need a narrator. I need like the couples therapy scene that follows two months later. Yes. Yes. The family (laughs) counseling. I need all of it. Yeah. And I was kind of pissed because I feel like we'd been sort of in the nitty gritty of all of these other adult situations with the girls. And then that conversation seemed to resolve so quickly. And I was like, that would have been the payoff would have been to really like find out what the conversation could have been like and really get to the bottom of what their issues had been. I was, I was frustrated by that, especially because I felt like the 30 pages leading up to that were kind of a drag. Like it was basically just, it went so slow because it was, you know, one of the girls had, like taken ill to her bed because she was so upset by the fact that the dad was going to be remarried. And so there wasn't really a lot going on except the mother found out that they had met at camp um, and was really like not that worked up about any of it. Um, she was like, oh, weird. Yeah, nobody And then surprised. immediately knows it's like in that moment, she's like, wait, am I with my actual, the one I've been living? Oh, probably not. This is probably the other one. It's like, oh yeah, you think so? It probably is the other one. You're right. There was a lot of like the whole nervous fever stuff like took up endless pages. And then at the end, it's like, let us just go in this room. Yeah, we're back together. Let's go get married again. <laughs> Sign him up for school. Bye, guys. Thanks for reading. I'm like, wait, what is happening? It also like it which shows my the generational sway and also now the employment lawyer is coming out of me. But I wanted the conversation to from the mom to be more meaningful to the girls. I think that you know, there's studies that say the most significant relationship you can have, good, bad, or indifferent, is with your mother. Like how that relationship plays out in your life, especially for daughters, is the single most significant relationship in molding how we approach the world. And I felt like in some ways the dad's evolution of like, oh no, now he wants to hang out with them. Look, he's evolved. Like, is so has, was so much more significant. Like, the mom didn't really evolve at all. Like, she just like, yeah, I'll uproot my whole life and move in with you, and we'll just live here. And you know, he it just all of it sat so poorly. Yeah, and as you're talking to, I'm realizing that the author presents these concepts as very adult. 
and then doesn't give the children reading the book the benefit of witnessing the adult conversation that would naturally follow given these events. It's like it wants to pretend to not talk down to the kids who are reading it and then totally steals that moment of reconciliation away from them. I mean, at one point he's saying, you know, this book was written while lots of kids were experiencing divorce and lots of kids were experiencing separation. And so I know you, child, reading this book can understand where I'm coming from when I tell this story, but then completely robs them of like the emotional truth of what reckoning with all of this feels like and kind of talks down to the kids and are like, you, you're like, you'll get over it. You'll find a reason or a way out of what you're experiencing and not have to actually show up for the, the pain and the difficulty that comes with all of that. I agree. I think this book is a really interesting commentary on divorce. I think it's an interesting commentary on a lot of things, um, given the time and place in which it was written. As a child of divorce, I grew up watching this movie and had some interesting feelings about it. And I think that I, as an adult who grew up as a child of divorce, I have some interesting thoughts and feelings about the original book. And I pulled out one quote from the book that I thought was really interesting. It says, there were very many divorced parents in the world at the time and very many children who were unhappy about it. And there were very many other children who were unhappy because their parents didn't get divorced. But if you suspected that the children were unhappy in those circumstances, then it would be in one way too considerate and in another way a mistake not to talk to them about it in an understanding and easily understood way. And I really kind of loved that. I mean, for as much about this book that felt really icky to me, as a kid who grew up being at times really frustrated that I felt like I was so different than everybody else, even as a child of the 90s, I sometimes felt like I was the only kid with divorced parents, which I obviously wasn't. To actually have an author acknowledge in a book for kids, kids who have divorced parents are unhappy, but also kids whose parents are still together are sometimes unhappy. That felt really good. Even at 29 years old, I was like, yes, I'm so happy that somebody wrote that down. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. I agree with that. My my concern with the quick reconciliation is that I have, for better or for worse, and in some instances, it is the right choice to his point about married people. Um, I have a lot of friends I, in my 40s. This is when people start getting divorced. Like, it just is. And I know that my friends who have kids of varying ages struggle with, like, did I do this? Did I cause this? Could I have prevented it? Could I have fixed it? And this book ends with children fixing it, right? At least uh, at least on the surface, that's what it appears happened. And they said, could you try again? And the parents were like, sure, we'll try again. Like, we shouldn't have separated. And, and I think that leaves a very dangerous view on a child's impact or lack thereof on marriage or the, dis- or the dissolution of marriage. How do you feel that plays out in in the movie? Because I I just feel like we can't talk about this book without talking about the movie because the movie is so big. Do you have a similar feeling about the way the reconciliation happens in the movie? I don't recall, and I didn't watch the movie before this call. I don't recall why they divorced in the movie or why they split up in the movie. I think they were young was sort of the implication. Like they were young and he was American. She was British, which I think is an important element. So they sort of were coming from two very different places. Theoretically, they would have had to figure out where they were going to live without being too far away from families. And they don't really talk specifically. It doesn't seem like there was any infidelity or neglect in the way that you see in the book. Like it's very obvious in the book that 
he was kind of a jerk. Not kind of. He was very much a jerk. And she actually seems to maintain some feelings for him. There's this little detail where they talk about how any time in Munich uh, an orchestra comes and plays his music, his new songs, the mom goes and sits alone in the back and sort of tries to think about how sad the music sounds so that she can at least be like, oh, you know, does being alone not make you happy? Does being rich not make you happy? So he was neglectful. He wasn't faithful to her, but she still is kind of like trying to check in on him. I think she gets some satisfaction out of him being unhappy, but also I think she still loves him. Yeah, and I think that in the book as well, there was the we were super young piece, right? Like they do say at least the mother in particular was super young when they had the girls. In the movie, it didn't feel as fantastical that they got back together, but I didn't have the book as the backdrop, right? Like, I I think I'm going to watch that movie again with an entirely different perspective on the narrative that gave life to that movie. Like, it'll still be cute and funny in so many ways, but even in the movie, it leaves you with the impression that these two little girls fix what was broken. And I think it undercomplicates the reality of romantic relationships, especially in those relationships where children are shared. Yeah. I watched that movie as a little kid and had this very romantic notion that marriage should just always work out. And that, and I was very blessed to be part of a family where my parents have stayed together that yes, there were intermarital conflicts and fights and things like that, but it never seemed to mirror my friend's parents who were going through divorce. And so I think as a a child of parents who are together, saw my friend's parents who were getting divorced and thought like, oh, they'll just parent trap it. Like they'll figure it out in the end and it'll work out. Like it, it, it actively instilled those beliefs in me. And obviously now I'm an adult and I realize that some people aren't meant to be together and that it actually can make people much happier to separate. So I think that was definitely a a very Disney family values kind of slant to their family problems. So yeah, I think I remember feeling that 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 movie was very romantic and it's, it's not really So I, too, am interested to go back and watch it and be sort of um, purposely angry at it. (laughs) I think we're all going to go watch the movie. I have Disney Plus now, so I think I have to go watch it. Is it on Disney Plus? Yeah, the new one definitely is. I think the old one probably is, too, because that was Disney. I told my son that um, I was reading the book, and he hasn't seen the movie, and now (gasps) he's interested in, yeah, He's 11, you know. So are you going to have the conversation with him? Like, this is not how shit actually goes down. I feel like maybe. I mean, listen, for the purposes of a book and a movie, it's fine if that's how it goes down. But I do think, like, and again, Allie, your point as a, as a child of divorce, like, there, it's probably not a coincidence that that movie is something you have memorized, right? Oh, like, interesting. Yeah, I had never thought about that, but yeah. The love for it is probably in some ways not completely coincidental um, because it does give an ending that at least children who don't have the full breadth of knowledge about why their parents may have, like, sort of the emotional reasons for why parents separate children just aren't equipped to understand. And that's fine. 
so you lean into the fantastical to make you feel a little more at ease. I, I think the other interesting thing about the book is I did, from as a reader, enjoy... I wanted more of certain characters, like um, like Rezzy. Like, you know, it, it was so funny because it's like, oh, she's awful, and then by the end, she's awesome. And it's like, well, I want to, I want to know more about that path. Like, is it just her experience with the different daughter made her not so wretched? Was she actually like cooking the books and stealing money? Because in the beginning. You know, the, I don't remember again if it's Louise or Lottie that came in and was like, "Oh, actually, you don't need as much money for groceries, and you're doing this all." Yeah, wrong. she was skimming off the top. Yeah, like there was so. I think that is a thread throughout the book for me. Is like some some of it left me wanting more. Like even the very beginning, by the, by page seven, I was enraged because it's like, up, oh, she's off the bus. They see each other, bing, bang, boom. We have the same face, and it's like, wait, what? Wait, we're already here. I need more. I need more Leah. Leah. And so maybe I was reading it forgetting it was a children's book. <laughs> no, because I think I feel like, I mean, I read a lot of these children's books. Um, and there is usually more exposition. You usually get a little bit more about the characters. I would have liked more of the mom, actually, because even though she was, like, not always the best parent, as a woman in 1940s Germany, I think she was actually kind of a badass. I, I really liked yeah. her a lot. And... I think that she had sort of, like, suffered in her relationship a lot more than her ex-husband. And so I wanted I wanted to learn more about kind of how she landed on her feet. Obviously, they were struggling financially, but she had established what seemed to be kind of a cool life in Munich. I wanted to know more about her. And I also, as somebody who grew up with a working mom, um, I was kind of pissed about the depiction of working moms in this book. And I feel like she should have gotten more credit not to say that all working moms are, like, engaged and wonderful, but I did feel like this book was kind of a condemnation of, like, all working moms everywhere because I think there was actually a line that said, like, a mom who, a mother who works is never going to be connected to her children, which is just not true. Yes, and as a working mom, and as a mom who worked 70 hours a week when my babies were babies, they're not babies anymore, I had that same feeling. I think that the author very deliberately told you repeatedly that she called her daughter her housewife so that it's planted that negative seed. And it worked in me too. As a working mom, that her depicting her daughter in that way sat really badly with me. Um, And then she sort of redeemed herself when you saw them at home and she was so grateful for the meals and she was trying to watch her sleep and like, But, yeah, there was no credence given to the juggle that is not only a working mom, but a single Single. working mom is really a Herculean effort. And to your point, in 1940s Germany, to successfully be cobbling that together, even if it was a little messy, was pretty significant. Especially in direct comparison to the dad who was just as absentee, if not more absentee as the mother was depicted, but but it was excused somehow because he's just wired like an artist. Like he's just free flowing and brooding and needs his time to create and go to the opera. And, and then like potentially like lies to his daughter and says he's off writing a children's opera, like as if it's for her, like it's just all, all of it is just for lack of a better word, 
sexist depiction of parenting. Yeah, and I, I think that it's it's a challenge often in talking about books that I, I have to watch myself because listeners know this. I am a feminist. I am very progressive. So, you know, when I'm thinking about a book in terms of, like, the commentary at a, at a bigger picture level, it's really easy for me to get pissed that, like, this is sort of the message that a man in 1940 was trying to get across about what it means to be a working mom. But then again, like, there's the character. I don't like the character. I don't like the fact that she calls her daughter a little housewife. I think she's not a great mom. But at the same time, I don't like that, like, that's imbued on her by a man in right. the 40s. So it's complicated because I sort of have like, this instinct to defend right. her. Like, I want yeah. her to be, I, I don't want it to be her fault that this is how she's choosing to parent. And she does kind of figure it out near the end of the book. She sees that this like new version of her daughter who's come back from camp is so much more carefree. And she's like, Oh, this must be what happens when she goes and like spends time with kids and isn't responsible for keeping my house. Um, you know, she does have sort of that like moment of truth where she decides that she's going to change her game a little bit, but I don't know. I just felt really complicated with the mom because I was like, this is, this is not who you really are. This is just what the author Eric Kastner is making you be. Yeah. And I think that, well, I, I don't know that I even go so far as to saying she wasn't a great mom, simply because with what she had, what she was dealt, I think it was probably well-intentioned. I think that they needed to eat. They needed the house kept. She had to work to make the little she made in an industry that probably wasn't favorable for women. And I could see a world in which she thought she was teaching her daughter how to take care of herself. That, of course, then created a scenario where there wasn't a lot of time to be a kid. But that actually happens today with a lot of kids who have a single working parent where there is less time to be a kid because it's an all-hands-on-deck thing. And I think the final nail in the misogynistic coffin is that... At the end, she just leaves her entire life and goes back to him. And there's no discussion of, like, she gave up her career, she gave up her identity, she gave it all up, and now they're married again. And la-ti-da, let's hope he doesn't cheat. You know? Like, I don't I don't know. The only argument that I'll make in the author's favor about all of this, because I— not because I came up with it, because I because I read it in a blog somewhere, which I thought was interesting, is that it's pretty obvious in this book that the twin who grew up with the father is, like, quote-unquote, unruly, misbehaved, naughty, spoiled. Like, these are kind of the words that come up. And so as much as I feel like the book is misogynistic in so many ways, I will say that, like, the author seems to be making a pretty clear point that, like, men can't handle... Children, and I'm not saying that that's true either. Um, but I also don't think that the book is like 100% in defense of men. Again, he's being very binary about it, and it's like a very old school view of like, well, moms should be good parents, and dads like can't handle their children. Um, but I do think that like, I don't know, it's all just interesting to me. The gender stuff is really interesting. Like, the family dynamics is really interesting. Um, he's like approaching it in a really binary way in some aspects but not in others I would like to know more about the author I was just going to say I'm dying to know if he's a child of divorce like I'm dying to know what in his life motivated this particular story or what else has he written I don't I don't know like if 
He's written a few yeah. others. The one that's at least listed on the cover of this book is called Emil and the Detectives, which I assume is another translated version of like some other German title. But I'm very interested in him. I couldn't find that much about him online other than sort of his political past. But I don't know. I feel like he did a few things really well. Like I liked some of the really direct comments he made about divorce. I liked the fact that there were moments when I felt like he was condemning the dad. But he did a lot of stuff that I didn't like. So um, it was complicated to me. For me, he told the line between condemning the dad, but also saying in what I saw then as misogynistic, like, but dad shouldn't have to do this. Mm, Interesting. Good at it because, of course, he wouldn't be good at it. Because we're not supposed to be good at it. Can I also say, too, though, Eric's intent in writing this book might just be lost literally in translation because Chrissy and I actually finished reading the book next to each other this morning and I turned to her and I read a sentence out loud and I was like, I feel like Siri wrote this sentence. Like, I don't (laughs) think this is actually how he meant to say this. And I like Google translate. The story itself is actually very smart. This can't be his language. Do you know what I mean? So if your listeners are thinking about reading this book, I would caution you the story. The story itself is engaging. The style of the writing and the language that's used for to communicate some of the concepts is very oversimplified. Yeah, some of the writing is really beautiful. I pulled out a line from like the first few paragraphs that I just loved. It says, In the evening, to be sure, the gray dwarf homesickness sometimes sits on the beds in the dormitory, takes his gray arithmetic book and his gray pencil out of his bag, and with an earnest expression on his face, he counts the tears of the children all around him, the tears that have been shed and the tears that haven't. And that is a description of what it's like to feel homesick at sleepaway camp. So good. I got goosebumps as you reread that. Christy and I were like vigorously nodding while you were rereading that to us because that line in particular clearly spoke to all three of us, which just shows that some of his imagery is actually pretty. Like there's like like floweriness to it. And other parts are kind of distinctly German in how like simplistic and rigid they are. And that was what I think, I think that I felt a little toyed with mm. because mm-hmm. there were these moments that I felt should have been more like that that were just not. It's just like, you know, they were just weren't. Even describing, you know, the girls' words, I wanted to hear more about their physical reactions to things, right? Like, not just a fever, but, like, when they were asking their parents to get back together, it was very, like, this is what they said and how they looked and their palms were sweating and they're, you know, there's just a lot that was missing. But that one description that you just read, like, is gorgeous it's beautiful as a work it's a little inconsistent I think both in terms of like ideology at times and in terms of the writing itself and as you said Izzy that could just be a product of it being a translation and maybe someday I'll learn to read German and I can read it as it was meant to be read I don't really see that happening but you never know the one character we have not talked about at all is the 1949 version of Meredith Blake um, Uh Irene Gerlach who is the dad's, like, new girlfriend. And no parent trap would be complete without a Meredith Blake. And I'll I'll just read one paragraph that kind of describes her intentions. It says, Irene Gerlach knows what she wants. She wants to marry Mr. Palfy. He is famous. She likes him. He likes her. So there aren't too many difficulties standing in the way of what she wants. Of course, he doesn't yet know how happy he will be, but she will make sure in good time, and breaking it to him gently, that he does know. In the end, he will think that he thought of the idea 
of marriage all by himself. However, there is still one obstacle, that foolish child. Then she goes on to be like, oh, but like once I give him a few babies, like he'll forget about that kid. Literally, literally. Izzy read me that paragraph. That's, I think that's the exact sentence that I was like, I think Siri wrote this. Yeah. Because it's like, hey, I like Siri. Him. He likes me. Yeah. Hey, Siri, tell me a story about my cheating father or something like that. That would be the response. It's so, you know what? It is, it's silly to read it out loud, but at the same time, like, it is the perfect distillation of, like, what it feels like to be a jealous kid in, in the face of somebody you don't like. Yeah, and I love how she interprets Lottie slash Louise's suggestion that, like, they swap apartments as, quote, a declaration of war. Of war, yeah. Well, she wants a fancy apartment, guys. Yeah, and they probably, like, have sex at the other apartment. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, I hope that was part of at least what she got out of it, but I— I mean, she had no chance of being, but to be evil, right? She was the obstacle. So they, I think just like, well, Meredith Blake is pretty awful in the movie, but this woman didn't stand a chance. She's also an opera singer. So that kind of like intensifies the melodrama of her showing up. Yeah. I think it's real. she's very easy to hate in a juicy way. Yeah. And there's that moment where Louise slash Lottie is so excited to be like at the theater watching her dad's conduction or his 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 opera and she realizes that Irene who she hadn't yet met at that point is sitting like I think just behind her and so she realizes that the, that the two of them are kind of competing for her dad's attention and I just I love that visual and I, I wish we'd gotten something kind of like that in the movie because I think it is sort of comedic in a way that like the little girl thinks that it's all about her but like this woman is behind her shamelessly flirting with the dad on stage yeah, his mistress is literally right behind her. And then she freaks out and accidentally knocks her chocolates all over oh, yeah. the orchestra of people sitting below her. So it's like you can feel the show kind of stop in that moment. I loved that. It's the ultimate, like, womp womp of a night at the theater. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So often to wrap up, um, if I'm talking about a book that my guest has read as a kid, um, we'll kind of talk about whether or not that book holds up in their estimation with their experience of reading it as a kid or if it's been a disappointment. Obviously, none of us read this as children. Um, So I think instead I'll just ask if each of you would maybe share like one redeeming thing about the book, one thing you enjoyed, and then maybe the thing you think was the worst. Because we have some strong feelings. Yes, definitely. And if Spumoni wants to jump in, because it feels like that might be the case, feel free, Spumoni. Spumoni is getting very excited about the whole misogynist um, (laughs) viewpoint. Um, Spumoni is a strong woman in her own right. Okay. I think that there were moments of prose that I found to be absolutely beautiful. And in some ways, it was a blessing and a curse because it, I felt, like I said, a little toyed with that I was like, oh, this writer is going to go for it and really take me through these descriptors of feelings, places and things that are going to strike a chord with me. Right. Like where we're reading a description of um, a meal. And by the time the description is over, you can truly smell it with your own nose. Like that's what I was waiting for. The one you picked out is one that sticks in my mind and probably was the most beautiful passage in the whole book for me. So that, I mean, it wasn't in that way, like reading it was enjoyable. I think that 
sort of the least redeeming is is that you're left wanting an acknowledgement of the complexity of the situation and and I think the girls were really just an afterthought in the story. It was really a story about these parents who, again, had no trouble taking these girls away from their siblings. The irony of, of recording with you now is the episode we just finished recording for our own podcast is Her Siblings. We just mm-hmm. spent an hour talking about sibling relationships. And so it's just interesting to think that, like, there's this world in which an author thought a worthwhile story involved tearing these girls from each other. And, and then they had to figure out how to put it back together. So, Oh, I know you have to go it's out. It's upsetting Spumoni. We know. Spumoni's, okay. So, so Spumoni's very sad about that. She yes. is. She's very she sad. She just got taken from her siblings. Oh, so sad. That's why womp, womp. we parent trapped Spumoni. We parent trapped Spumoni. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Okay, I will say the redeeming part for me was getting to see the sisters plan to switch identities. I think that's the best part in the Lindsay Lohan movie, and that it happens again in the book. And if they robbed me of that in this book, I was going to be pissed. And they give you a solid chapter of them learning how to switch identities with each other. And a lot of the things are very different than the things that they swap in the movie. So I love that sort of like detective work that they do piecing together each other's lives. I thought that was very fun. One thing that I'm left wanting more of is the context for the political moment that this author was writing the book in. I thought they were talking about being in Germany a lot. It was definitely written to be contemporary with what was happening in Germany. And I think that it could have only been enhanced more by mentioning all of the complex things that kids were dealing with at the time. I agree. That would have been interesting. One more thing before we wrap up, other than Parent Trap, I'd love for you to share if there's anything else that you've been reading lately and loving that you would recommend to our listeners. This is actually kind of relevant to talking about siblings, but I'm halfway through Where the Crawdads Sing right now. I don't know if you've read it yet, but it talks all about family relationships and siblings and um, the main character. It's not a spoiler because it happens at the beginning, um, is abandoned by all of her siblings who sort of give up on their family and leave her Where the Crawdads Sing, like in the middle of nowhere. I love that book. Highly recommend. I, probably my favorite book of recent of late, of late is a book called uh, Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody. Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. I don't know if you've read it, I Allie, did. but it's really, it's really great. Um, and I'm about to start reading No Happy Endings, which is by Nora Borealis McInerney. Uh, Nora McInerney has an amazing podcast called um, Terrible Thanks for Asking. And my husband bought me this book for Christmas, and I'm excited to dive in. My favorite children's book of all time is Wonder, which my which I read with my own children. And I think book versus movie, the book is far better than the movie, but the movie was pretty good too. Um, so if you if you haven't read Wonder, have you read Wonder? You gave it to me as a gift, and I didn't finish reading okay. it. So now that you both are saying it's one of your favorites, I definitely it have is to go back. An amazing, amazing book. Yeah, yeah, Izzy, you've got to read it. It's so good. Well, I will include links to all three of those books in the show notes for this episode, along with the link to this particular translation of Lottie and Louise slash The Parent Trap for those who want to check it out. Christy, Izzy, thank you so much. Oh, Spumoni, also, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I want everybody who's tuning in right now to make sure that they head on over to From Where She Sits, which is your show, um, and check that out. Give that a listen. Um, It's been so fun chatting with you both, and I hope you have a great rest of your afternoon. You too, Allie. Nice talking to you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. 
Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>